and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today is a real treat for me because I get to have a conversation about parenting and adoption with one of my favorite people, my dear friend Caroline Clark. Caroline is an award-winning journalist, author, and broadcaster who's been an innovator and thought leader in many areas, including brand building and business development. Her first book, Take a Lesson, gave us insight on the qualities of great leaders. In her second book, the highly acclaimed memoir, Postcards from Cookie, Caroline, who was adopted shortly after she was born, takes us on the riveting journey of her surprise discovery of her birth mother, Cookie Cole, the daughter of Nat King Cole, and the relationship that they developed. Caroline has two children, Veronica, who is 26, and Carter, who's 23. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Caroline. Thanks, Carol. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I love Ground Control Parenting. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's so great to have you here. We've known each other for a long time, for decades, and we've had loads of conversations about our kids and parenting over the years. I've watched as you went through the journey to find, discover, and and meet your birth mother, and, and it was such a thrill to see how thoughtfully and well you were able to capture it all in your amazing memoir. So I'm excited to talk with you about your story and your thoughts about parenting and adoption. So let's get started. Let's go. Let's start at the beginning. So your story, which was written many years ago, has just recently come back into the news as you were profiled recently on CBS Good Morning. CBS This Morning. CBS This Morning. Thank you. (laughs) There's actually a a new chapter to the story, which we'll get into in in a little bit. But can you take us back to the beginning when the story unfolded? It was 2002. And you went back to Spence Chapin, which is the agency from which you were adopted, to try to get some information about your genetic makeup. Is that right? Well, I went back to Spence Chapin really just to get medical information. It was it was pretty simple. Um, Spence Chapin is a is a venerated private adoption agency in New York City, and they have a long history, specifically in African American adoption. So. Um, in my case, I knew given when I was born, which was the, you know, the sixties that, um, you know, those records are sealed like a tomb. There have <laughs> been, there have been a lot of advances and a lot of developments in, um, in freeing adoption records. There are still records that you just can't get to no matter what. And, and I knew enough to know that mine were in that era. And, and it was really fine. I've, I've struggled for years with sort of undiagnosed joint pains. I had very young children at the time. You mentioned my kids. I can't believe they're grown now, but at the time they were, um, you know, five and eight. And I really just wanted medical information. I think one of the most frustrating things for adoptees, particularly as we get older, is that, you know, we all go to the doctor and the first question they always ask is, what's your medical history? And when you're adopted, you just don't know. I just motivated by a fear of what I could be passing on to my children. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get medical information if I could. And honestly, it was a long shot, but that's what I was trying to get. Got Mm -hmm. a whole lot more than that. (laughs) And so when they handed you the thick file, um, you were um, able to piece together pretty quickly that not only was there a lot to chew on in terms of who your birth mother was and where she grew up and, and the more you looked at the file, you more you realized that you actually 
knew the family. You know, it it happened to be, which I think was a part of the magic of this, right? And it really mm-hmm. was like mm-hmm. one of these stranger than fiction things. Um, the fact is it was a black social worker at Spence mm. Chapin mm-hmm. who had gone rifling through my file and she called a bunch of information, what they call social history and mm-hmm. looking for medical history. So that included like the first physical description I'd ever had of my birth mother and, um, you know, what she majored in in college, which was English like me, Um, what her favorite foods are. I mean, it was all these random facts, Um, but they also painted a picture of her nuclear family at the time that I was born. And it was a very unique family. Um, It was a picture of clear wealth, you know, like (laughs) debutante balls and world Mm -hmm. travel and chauffeurs and nannies and maids and household staff type of wealth, which was shocking, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think when you're adopted, you may not know much, but I think the one thing we all presume is that whatever situation we were taken out of was worse than we got, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you never presume wealth. And I think for Black people in particular, um, we don't relinquish children easily to this day. You know, we just mm-hmm. don't. We have a history of our families being stripped apart mm-hmm. through slavery and after and even during migration. And so we really hold on to our children. Adoption has historically been sort of the port of last resort. And if we adopt, it's generally within the family. You know, you mm-hmm. have sisters mm-hmm. raising nieces and grandparents (laughs) raising grandchildren and so forth. So, you know, to hear that this was a wealthy family that had relinquished me was, was really shocking. And, and initially I just didn't believe it. I just thought, wow, you know, my birth mother had these people fooled. You know what I'm saying? Like the information they gave me said she wanted to be an actress. And I thought, well, she was a good actress from the jump because she fooled these people. Um, and I really was getting upset though. And, and I remember, um, the social worker, you know, she stopped reading me this report and she looked at me and she said, you know, what's wrong? And I said, you know, this is not even remotely believable. What are you trying to do to me here? And, you know, she, she sort of just kind of very calmly leveled me in her gaze, you know, and she said, I need you to trust me. Your birth mother would have been completely vetted. And this story is true. Um, And I think, you know, that upset me more because mm-hmm. I, I think when you when you believe that um, the circumstances your birth mother was in were just untenable, right? If if she was just poor or ill or mm-hmm. um, you know in any way just unable to care for you, that's one thing you get that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. As a mother, you know, even you get loving your child so much, which is what my mother who raised me always said, oh, your mother loved you so much. She gave you away because she couldn't take care of you. Well, if you got a maid and a chauffeur and a nanny, you know, you got other people who could have taken care of me. I mean, not that I would want to be raised by the staff, but you know, what are we talking about here? So, so that was hard, you know, because Mm -hmm. I think it was really, it was the first time in my life that I felt unwanted, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. I I had never felt unwanted. My parents Mm -hmm. 
desperately wanted me and loved mm-hmm. me madly. And I had a great extended family who loved me and um, poured into me. And my my parents who raised me, you know, had always convinced me that my birth mother really loved me and, mm-hmm. and gave me a way out of love. And I thought, this is not that story. Mm-hmm. And and since you have you were a mother by the time you heard this story, you knew firsthand how difficult it would be to hand off a child after you've just given birth. So so I, I understand that, that you would expect there to be this extenuating circumstance that would force you to do that. And, and you weren't getting that from the information. Not at all. And, you know, it's funny that you say that, Carol, because I have not once ever put myself in my birth mother's shoes mm. and thought about what would it really feel like to give your child away? It just occurred to me. I've never, I mean, I, I felt, I have felt a lot of compassion, empathy for my birth mother, mm-hmm. but I've never stopped to try to feel what that would feel like. And I honestly, I don't think I can. It would be so wretchedly painful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I don't even want to think about that. Yeah. And imagine because you now know her story, the pain is 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 multiplied by her probably thinking similarly to you that she didn't have to do this. And in fact, in your book, you talk about the fact that she, when you connected with her, told you that she was trying to figure out a different way because um, it was not something that um, she felt needed to be done. Yeah, you know there there is a whole generation of women, um, Cookie's generation, and and there's not a lot of work that has been done on them. You know, when I go to speak to young kids now, I, I, I talk to young people a good bit. And when I'm there talking about my story, the thing they never understand is, but why does she have to give you up? What's the big deal, right? Because we've, our culture has moved so far in terms of our views around single parenthood, mm-hmm. right? Especially mm-hmm. in black and brown community. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, it's, it's more the norm than not. So, but at that time it was such a shameful thing, you know, this was like a scarlet letter type deal. And these women were absolutely shamed and sent away as cookie was, you know, her family lived in LA. She was, um, sent to New York, hidden away under an assumed name, Mm -hmm. Um, in a unwed mother's home. It was called the Washington Square Home for Friendless Girls. I mean, how much more (laughs) do you need to know about how (laughs) shamed and ostracized these young women were, right? They were sent away to have their babies, give them up, come home having lost that pregnancy weight and slip back into your life like nothing happened and never speak of it again. That's what Cookie was told. Never speak of this. This is a secret that you have to carry all your life. And for, for many, many of these women, um, this was a trauma from which they never fully recovered. They have a higher incidence of, um, early onset illness of early death of mental illness and of infertility which if you Mm. think about it, right, what trauma can do to your body, you know, these women had children, gave them away, and many of them were not able to conceive again. So it was a deep thing. And in Cookie's case, you know, the, the real sorrow 
She was largely pressured to give me up, of course, because her father was so famous. We should, I should interrupt to say that her father was Nat King Cole. And, and so she had a very, very famous father. Her mother, who was her adoptive mother, um, from your book is made clear, was very much a um, stickler for um, making sure family names were not besmirched, et cetera. And it sounds like she was very much of the mindset that the best thing for Cookie was to go off and then come back and re-enter life. Well, the really sad thing was that, yeah, um, the the Cole family, you know, Cookie's parents, who, as you said, this is an example of adoption within a family. Cookie was orphaned um, as a toddler and her mother's sister, who ended up being Nat King Cole's wife, um, and Nat King Cole adopted her mm-hmm. um, because her parents were were gone when she was three. So um, it was determined that Cookie should be sent away to have me and give me up and never speak of it. Um, it sounds outrageous now, but they were they were afraid that mm-hmm. you know if it got out that Nat King Cole's first child had a child out of wedlock, it would be so shameful um, that it would be a stain on his reputation, which could potentially topple everything. Um, Sounds crazy now, but I mean, realistically, it it wasn't. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But the really sad thing is that um, Cookie did give me up. And six weeks later, her father died um, Mm -hmm. from lung cancer. And she didn't know that he was ill when I was born. You know, she was living in New York and no one had told her how ill he was. And um, and he was gone. I was six weeks old and there was no ability to go back. Hmm. And get me. So, you know, presumably giving me up to protect this reputation of this person at the end of the day, it wasn't even about reputation because he he wasn't even alive anymore. So really tragic story for her Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of lucky story for me because I did get a a great family out of it. But (laughs) and and I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, You you talk about this in your book. Um, I think you were in your late thirties when you went to Spence Chapin. Right. Your ability to, first of all, absorb this information and not have your head fall off your neck <laughs> was in great part because, as you said, you hadn't been searching. You felt very loved and protected and very much a part of of your family. Um, and it is a real tribute to your adoptive parents that this journey was as magical as it turned out to be. But was it tough to balance your excitement at this discovery, which with your concern about how your family would feel knowing that you had sort of fallen for another Yeah, <laughs> I think, you know, it, it was a lot to take in, but the hardest people to share the news with um, were definitely my children mm. um, because they were so young and you know, it's a complicated situation and I really wasn't, um, I wasn't sure how to kind of make them understand. I wasn't sure, you know, how it would make them feel, how it would make them feel about my parents. You know, it's, it's Mm -hmm. a lot for small Mm -hmm. children to understand Mm -hmm. and navigate. So, so telling them was, um, was a challenge, you know, how do I position this and what do we call, her and who do I tell them these other people are? Um, and my parents, you know, that was just the hardest thing. And, and I went into it really feeling like if they struggled with it, I would just 
put it aside and not move Ooh. forward um, because their feelings were tantamount to me. I, I didn't want them to feel that they weren't enough. I didn't want them to feel mm-hmm. threatened. Um, so if they had freaked out, I, I think I would have <laughs> just said, you know what? It's not that big a deal. I'll just, you know, I, I think <laughs> I would have tried to file it away and wait until mm-hmm. they were okay with it. I think their blessing it um, was a, just a critical piece of the puzzle and my ability to m- to bless it myself. So what would you say then um, if parents who are listening um, are adoptive parents? I mean, your adoptive parents gave you the gift of acceptance and of encouragement. But as you know it in the book, it was tough. How would you counsel parents who this is their greatest fear, that who, whose children start to want to find their birth parents to be able to let them do it? Because it, it is such a gift. Yeah, I have counseled several um, adoptive parents because this does come up a lot. And particularly in more recent years where adoption is much more open and mm-hmm. adoptive parents today um, often met the birth parents. You know, it's really, it, it's, it's a very much um, open territory where each situation is unique unto mm-hmm. itself. Um, and so, uh, you know, what I say to parents, I, I think the greatest gift in my situation, and it sounds cliche and it's overly simplified, but I really think if everyone comes to the table um centering themselves in love and openness to embracing whatever, you know, I think if you adopt a child, you know, they have a history that, Mm -hmm. that existed before you came into their life, even if it was just for hours. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. at some point in all likelihood, that history is going to resurface one way or another. Mm-hmm. And I think it is a, it is a fearful prospect. Um, you know, parenting is hard, right? Ground control is all about this. Ground control wouldn't exist if parenting was a breeze. It's one of the hardest things any of us ever does. And when you have to factor into that, that this child was not born to you and that they are made up of things, DNA and, and other, you know, nature over nurture things that you may not be aware of and you can't control. Um, You have to embrace all of that. You just Mm -hmm. do. I mean, ideally you do, and you have to be open to, to however that manifests. And I think if you can just kind of keep yourself there through the years, it, it won't be quite as difficult, but, but you know, that's so much easier said than done. Um, In my case, all of the parties came to it with just a tremendous amount of grace and goodwill. You know, my parents, um, I don't think they were thrilled. You know, my father, mm-hmm. he did ultimately meet Cookie, but he never really wanted to be a part of it. And I was very much a, a daddy's girl. Um, my dad's attitude was like, I'm very happy for you. And listen, he loved Nat King Cole. Like, I knew every Nat King Cole lyric because. I grew up in a house where every single weekend the house was full of music and Nat King Cole was high on the playlist. And I think he was overwhelmed 
to learn that I had some biological connection to one of his musical heroes, but he really wanted no parts of the whole thing. Um, Mm -hmm. He was like, you enjoy that. You know where to find me. You know, I'll be, I'll be where I've always been right here in our house in the Bronx and I don't need to go to LA and they don't need to come here. You know, he was like, enjoy it, you know, but I don't really want it to change what we have. My mother, I think was much more curious about cookie. Um, And that was hard for me because it was easier for me to compartmentalize, you know, and I was grateful that Cookie was in L.A. My parents were in New York because like in L.A., I could go there and I could be Cookie Cole's daughter, you know, Mm -hmm. and I could immerse myself in that family. And we had a great time and I loved them. She had two other sons. I'm an only child, raised as an only child. Suddenly I have brothers. They were amazing. They embraced me. Um, You know, I had aunts. I, I had a whole family there great, but they were there. And then I could come back home where I was Vera and Bob Clark's daughter, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and kind of, it was just very easy to keep them separate in that way. It would have been tough to juggle, you know, if, if they lived around the corner from each other or within a drive, even, um, I didn't have to do that. And I didn't try to do that. What you just said raises the question of, when a person is is emotionally mature enough to handle all this now you were in your late 30s and your birth mother lived across the country imagine you are 18 and they lived around the corner yeah as much as the evidence indicates that children should um a know about their adoptive status very early and opening adoptions are encouraged if they can have access it's great the 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 upside of that is that the, there's no void. The child feels they know their story and they're fully they 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 can fully live it. But there's a maturity that's required yeah. to because there are a lot of feelings. I mean, just imagine from say your mom, your adoptive mom's perspective. Okay, so your child goes off and finds their birth parent. Okay, that's great. You're happy for them. Then they find out their birth parent is like. <laughs> part of a family that your husband reveres, that the world reveres. She's discovered that she's related to black royalty and she's going to go off and, <laughs> and, and join that family. Much less likely when you're in your late thirties, early forties <laughs> than if you were 15. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I think my mother was really afraid of that. You know, Cookie was just 20 when she had me. So my mother who raised me, um, I think she was very worried. She didn't ever confide it in me, but she Mm -hmm. confided it in my mother-in-law and others that, you know, she just thought I would be completely wooed by, you know, this, whatever she imagined to be this glamorous, much younger, cooler, hipper version, right, um, of a mother who hadn't been saddled with any of the, like, teenage battles she and I had (laughs) and, you know, all the complications of typical... Um, parent, child, mother, daughter stuff, right? Um, and I and I really really had grown you up so beautifully, and now <laughs> yeah, right. And then you just get to waltz in and enjoy all of my hard work, right? Um, but I, but you know, my mother never said this to me. To her credit, I mean, she'll always be my hero. She she was very stoic in general, but she never showed her cards. She never saddled me with that level of guilt or responsibility, which, you know, is classic her. But I think she walked around, you know, really um, worried 
that my children too would be sort of dazzled, right? You go there and Natalie Cole, you know, is their great aunt and they used to watch The Parent Trap all the time. And they, you know, this will be as a song mm-hmm. on there. And, you know, I mean, it is it is something to contend with. And, and I mm-hmm. think that my mother was... Um, was worried about that. But but you're right. And I'm always grateful that I was 37. I have a goddaughter who's adopted and um, she she got to the point where she really wanted to find her birth parent. She was a senior in high school. And I spoke to her and I know that she thought I was going to be all for it, right? Because I'd met mm-hmm. my birth parents, but I was very much against it. And I, and I was very honest with her. I said, listen, you know, you're just about to go off to college. You've got a zillion things happening in your life right now that are enough to juggle without mm-hmm. adding this on. You don't know what you're going to find. You don't know how that's going to make you feel about yourself or this person who mm-hmm. you fantasized mm-hmm. about, right? I mean, we do fantasize about, what we come from. Mm-hmm. And it's not uncommon, you know, to imagine this fairy tale. I happened to get the fairy tale, but you know, you gave me too much credit, Carol, I have to say, because you, you, you were very kind to say, oh, you know, you process this with so much grace. The fact of the matter is the first time I ever went to therapy was on the heels of this information. <laughs> so, so, you know, I don't know well, about I processing it with so much grace. Well, that's graceful. I didn't say you did it all by yourself. <laughs> I definitely, I definitely, yeah, I definitely did not do it all by myself. I, I absolutely went to a therapist. I didn't know anyone who had ever been through anything like this. And while it was theoretically good news, it was a lot, right? It was just a lot. I always say, like this experience taught me, things can be good and really hard, right? Mm. Like we tend mm-hmm. to equate good with easy and bad with hard, Mm -hmm. but things can be really good and incredibly difficult. And this was one of those things. Mm -hmm. So, so let me ask you this now adoptions, as we've noted, are are much more open. They're, they're not, um, children are encouraged to be told when they're very young, they grow up knowing they're adopted. How differently can you imagine your life if you had known about your birth mother from early days? I don't know what I would have done with it. I really don't. Now, I do, I do feel, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge adoption advocate. Being adopted is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. As great as finding my birth mm-hmm. parents has been, um, you know, everything I am is because I ended up with the family I ended up with, and I was just very fortunate. Um, every adoptee is not that fortunate. And every birth child is not that fortunate. You know, we, we get what we get, right? But I, I've been very, very blessed. Um, I did not find out I was adopted until I was almost eight years old. And um, that is no longer supposed to happen in adoption. Children are just supposed to be raised, you know, with this being a very organic part of their story. So that typically when, you know, a child will ask where they came from or whatever at a very young age, this is supposed to be the story from the beginning. I absolutely think that's a much better way to go. So you mm-hmm. don't have this break in your reality, which I did between mm-hmm. presuming I came out of my mother's womb and then finding out, no, you didn't. And there's this whole other woman and this whole other story. Mm-hmm. Um, 
kids are amazing. They process and they move on. And I did. But I think it would have been better to just always know. That said, I don't have any idea what it would have been like to have to factor in Mm -hmm. all of it from a Mm -hmm. very young age. But, you know, you think about families of divorce Mm -hmm. where when stuff hits the skids, the kid is like, you know what? I don't want to be here anymore. I'm going to go live with dad. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. where where when you have those options (laughs) that you typically don't have, but if you really had another family potentially to go to, you know, what does that do and what does that look like and how is that handled? So it creates all other manner of complications that I, I, I just can't imagine, but people, people do do it. People do live it and they work it out. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, they do. I, I understand completely why you would have preferred not to have had this abrupt discovery And yet you had another abrupt discovery a little later in life because your parents had told you that both your parents were black. And that was in the, what, the 70s or the 80s, whenever black had just become extremely beautiful. So you held on to that knowledge pretty firmly. And that was a part of who you were until it wasn't in that you found out that your birth father was white. And Mm -hmm. I would imagine if you were to counsel parents that certainly if you are to not wait to tell your child about adoption, you probably also should not misrepresent <laughs> the parentage. Is that fair? That's fair, Carol. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know what? So here's the thing, right? My parents were both educators and we had more books in our house than anything else. And a lot of them were parenting books, right? Mm-hmm. My parents did not just wing it. Um, they they approached parenting the way they did everything else, especially because they had always wanted this. And so they had plenty of time to kind of <laughs> read up on it. But, you know, the, the experts at the time um, told adoptive parents of mixed children to tell them that they were black. Generally, mixed children looked black enough Mm -hmm. that they were only going to be placed in black homes. They were not going to be placed in white homes as they are today. Um, That was not even remotely an option. And, And those parents were counseled to eventually tell them they were adopted, tell them they were very much wanted and loved, and tell them they were black. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think the thinking at the time um, was that it was just going to be more difficult. It was going to make life that much more difficult to also have to process that they were mixed. So Mm -hmm. my parents did what they were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. um, But when the cards came tumbling in on them, when my aunt uh, let slip the truth, yeah, I was in my mid-20s, And I was mortified. I think I had a story in my head like that my biological parents, who I had been told were college students, which was Mm -hmm. true, um, had this amazing love story. You know, I think I made them out to be like Black Romeo and Juliet. And, (laughs) you know, ooh, they fell in so deep a love and they had this beautiful love child and their families (laughs) wouldn't let them marry and stay together. And so, oh, they had to give me up. How tragic, how terrible, how awful. Right. (laughs) And when I found out that my biological father was white, that fantasy completely caved. I thought 
maybe he took advantage of her. Maybe she mm. was raped. You know, I, I couldn't really easily embrace the idea that in the mid sixties, this was white Romeo and black Juliet <laughs> in love, yeah. but you know, but, but I was really kind of ashamed. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a new phase for me. Can I also suggest that perhaps um, the, the news disturbed you because, you know, you wrote about in your book and, and, and I know this to be the case that, um, you got mistaken for a lot of different things. Yeah. I mean, you, you, the way you look, you know, your complexion, your hair texture, you just people, you, whatever neighborhood you were going into, you know, Hispanic, Indian, you could, you were mistaken for that. Yeah. Now, when you're young and particularly as black as really beautiful and, and you're in a household where it's really embraced, it is almost insulting to be, you, you, you feel if your, your identity is being challenged, if you're mistaken for something else. Yeah. So I wonder if, that the, the the young girl who had to defend her blackness sort of was holding on to that. And then to find out that, oh, I actually am something else as well, <laughs> was a little disappointing. I mean, it's a weird thing to say now, but I mean, it, sh- it, it shook you. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It was, I was so proud to be black. You know, my parents were um, so into black history. We lived in Africa for a while when I was a child. My, my dad taught chemistry at the university of Liberia. You know, my, my parents were wearing dashikis and stuff, but that we bought in Africa, like not on 125th street, you know? So, I mean, I was so proud of my black heritage and my black culture. I went to a black church. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was just so proud of that. And, and the other thing is that, and this is also why adoptive parents were counseled to say this, it made me like my parents, right? At least we came from the same people. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to f- be different from them. I didn't want to factor in this other piece. Yeah. Yeah. So that actually takes us very naturally to your father, your birth father, which is the really amazing, if the story wasn't magical enough, (laughs) I mean, we should also say, for those who haven't read the book, is that while the story was magical, it was tragic as well, because while you were able to reunite with your birth mother, you only had seven years with her because she passed away. She, you lost her to cancer. So Fast forward now, how many years later was this? Your son Carter is living in LA, is that right? My son Carter was in New York. Um, oh, in New York. He was in college. He was turning 20. Mm-hmm. And all he wanted for his birthday was a DNA kit. So I got one and, um, you know, gave it to him. And, and a couple months went by and he had gone back to school. Um, And I get a call and he had gotten his results. And, you know, he kind of gave the breakdown of, you know, your 20% this and 40% that and whatever. (laughs) But then apparently you get sort of a family tree-ish thing, which shows um, if there are people in the same database that you've Mm -hmm. used for your DNA kit, whose DNA matches up with yours, they'll send you that information. And 
there was one person who was like one degree of separation, for lack of a better word. And what they what he received was that person's initials. Um, and if you wanted to pursue, they would send you the email. And so um, the initials were JG. Now we knew, and it's in, it's in the book, Postcards from Cookie, that my biological father's name was Stanley Goldberg. Cookie told me that the first time we spoke. And Carter gets this thing and it says, you know, there's this person whose initials are JG. And he says, well, mom, you know, the G could be for Goldberg. Um, and he said, well, what do you think? You know, would you be okay if I reached out? And I said, you know, this is, this is your show. I've done mine. <laughs> I've had my moment with this discovery um, thing. You know, this is, this is up to you. Now people have said, you know, weren't you eager to know? Why didn't you look for your father? And, you know, and what I always said is, you know, I didn't search for cookie. I happened very luckily to find cookie without searching. Um, and so I didn't, I just didn't want to search these days. You can search people on social media, but, um, I put Stanley Goldberg's name in the book. There's a whole chapter that lays out everything I knew about him, which wasn't a lot, but it was enough that if he or anyone who really knew him read the book, I thought, well, he can always reach it out to me. Right. And that had not happened. So, I wasn't saying to my son, oh, yes, please pursue this. I need to know. I, you know, I think I had such an amazing journey with Cookie. And by this time, my parents were both passed away. I was okay. You know, mm -hmm. I was just yeah. like, this is up to you. So sh long story short, he he went ahead and sent an email. It turned out JG was Gerald Goldberg, who was Stanley Goldberg's brother. And 48 hours tops, I think. Um, my son had emailed his grandfather and, um, and just laid it out. You know, I'm, this is my name and my mother was adopted and her mother was Carol Cole. And, uh, we have reason to believe and incredibly, he very graciously replied to my son, um, you know, within a couple hours and said, you know, I'm so honored to meet you and, and to be your grandfather, which I, I just thought was extraordinary, wow. mainly because Stanley Goldberg never, ever knew until my son reached out to him that Cookie had been pregnant. Wow. So it's not like this man was walking around thinking he had a child somewhere. He had no clue. And yet, you know, he embraced it entirely. That is amazing. And you met him. I met him. Um, yes. And, you know, he texts me like almost every day. <laughs> so um, he's in his, you know, he's in his late 70s now. And um, he's just so thrilled. I don't know what I would do if this happened to me, you know, on the other side, somebody shows up. And the thing is I've, I've done, you know, I've been involved, as I said, with adoption for a lot of years, and I've sat on panels with other adoptees and I've counseled adoptive parents and, and I've heard amazing stories, but I've heard really heartbreaking, 
awful stories of people mm-hmm. having doors literally slammed in their faces and mm-hmm. um, phones slammed down on them. And p- please don't ever call here. You know, nobody oh. knows that that ever happened to me and mm-hmm. I can't go back there again. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this can be really, really painful and traumatic territory, particularly for birth parents. And so the fact that both of mine, um, you know, Cookie got a call from me out of the clear blue sky and embraced it. And then Stan gets a text from his grandson and, uh, and they just leaned into it. It's, it's, it sounds so simple, but it's really not. No, that's, the magic of it. As you said, having had that experience with finding your birth mom, you figure it just can't get better than this. Why tempt fate? But here is the thing. When you go looking for your birth mother, she carried you for Mm -hmm. nine months. She gave birth to you. She had to go through the whole kit and caboodle like she was going to keep you. And then she had to relinquish you, which she is never going to forget ever. Right. Because of how society was in particular back then, that just is not the experience for the guy. (laughs) The guy was not sent away. The guys were not shamed for getting these women pregnant. And this guy didn't even know. He didn't even know, right? But even in cases where they did, they weren't sent away in shame and told to never speak of it. You know, that just, they were allowed to stay on the football team or go get the next girlfriend or head off to college or do whatever, um, knowing or not knowing, but not having to physically go through that process of pregnancy and relinquishment. And not to take away from those for whom, you know, it may have been painful and they would have preferred things to go another way, but they certainly didn't have to go through the physical or the social, um, you know, stigma of that. And so to call Cookie, like she knew she had a child. Mm -hmm. I knew that Stan did not know that she was pregnant. And so I thought I'm going to, you know, am I going to find some poor, you know, man in his, you know, senior years and out of nowhere be like, Hey, guess what? (laughs) Not only do you have a 50 something year old child, (laughs) she's black, you know, like I just, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a bad prospect necessarily, but I just didn't know what that would do, you know? And, and I was okay. Right. I mean, that's the bottom line. I was okay. Um, right. Would would have been perfectly happy to find him, but didn't need to find right. him. And um, so, you know, just so fortunate for me, the best case scenario is what happened. Again. <laughs> again. So. But again, good, not synonymous with easy. You know, not easy. Right. And and to be perfectly honest, white dad, black, grown daughter, grown grandchildren who each have their own position on this journey and black lives matter and everything Mm -hmm. that's happened Mm -hmm. since. And that has created lots of tough conversations between he and I. 
mm-hmm. um, that some of which are unresolved, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very liberal and, um, you know, but that does not make it easy. We don't see everything eye to eye and, and, and we really, you know, following George Floyd's uh, murder, um, we had a lot of tough texting and conversations and, and there were times probably we both walked away. Like I'm not coming back, Mm. you know, it was hard. Yeah. 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 A hard, but still absolutely amazing. I mean, to have four people all be a part of your life is pretty, four parents who are responsible for you is, is pretty, pretty miraculous. And, um, and you have done every one of them proud <laughs> and, and you have, you have written it for the world to read about. And for that, we are all very, very grateful. <laughs> Thank you. And with that, my dear, I'm going to wrap it up and ask you right before you go to please play the GCP bonus round with me. First, your favorite poem, which I'm sure you have, you English major. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved a lot of poets. Um, I love If by Rudyard Kipling, but, yes. but my favorite poem is a poem nobody would know because my aunt wrote it. Ah, I have an aunt. Uh, one of my mother's sisters was a poet. Um, and I'm working on a book actually about her life that will include her poetry, but, but so no one would know that. So we'll go with if. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. We'll just say your aunt's name, the the poet that we will all one day know. So my aunt's name was Elisa Guillermo. She was a, she was a schizophrenic, but she was like many mentally ill people. She was really a brilliant. And she wrote all of this autobiographical poetry and I inherited it. And uh, yeah, working on this book called Ragdoll, which is actually uh, the name of her favorite poem that I love. Oh, great. Well, we can't wait. (laughs) Final question, your favorite two children's books, and they can be books that you grew up with or that you read to your children. So they're books that I grew up with. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith was absolutely one of my favorite books of all time, still to this day. And The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett, which was also my mother's favorite book as a child, my mother who raised me. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, those those are the two that always, always, always come to mind when, when I'm asked that question. Caroline, those are great answers. And again, I thank you so much for being with us today. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review where you find your podcast and tell your friends. In the meantime, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at www.groundcontrolparenting.com for tons of parenting info and advice. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. Please send comments and questions on any of these platforms because we really want to hear from you. Caroline, thank you once again. Thank you, Carol, so much. Great. So until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.